Hi, I'm Elena Neal Sachs, a podcast producer at The Oregonian. We're back with another episode of our limited series podcast, The Unidentifieds. I hope you listen to all six episodes, released here every week instead of Beat Check. If you like what you hear, follow our show and leave us a review. Without further ado, here's episode five. East of Portland, along the northern border of the state of Oregon, is the Columbia River Gorge. It's a dramatic sight, when on par with some of the most impressive natural wonders in the world. The Columbia River, which divides Oregon and Washington, is more than a mile wide in places, and the cliffs it has spent eons carving out of the earth on either side rise, spectacularly, hundreds of feet into the sky. It's a beautiful, awe-inspiring place, and trying to list its highlights would take more time than we have here. But there is one that rises above all the others, Multnomah Falls. Multnomah Falls is one of the most iconic sites in the Northwest. It's taller than any building in Portland, and at only about a half hour drive from the city, it's a popular day trip destination. But for a pair of hikers in the late 1970s, a trip to the falls took an unexpected turn when they discovered human remains on a rocky slope above a little used trail. Absolutely, it can be dangerous. It was a steep almost a free-falling slope. He was a John Doe for us for the longest period of time. I'm Regan Mertz. And I'm Dave Killen. This is The Unidentifieds, a podcast from The Oregonian and Oregon Live. In the summer of 1979, Jeffrey Pape was assigned to a Clackamas County Sheriff's Office patrol that partnered with the U.S. Forest Service. The partnership was meant to provide a police presence at the recreation areas throughout the Columbia River Gorge. Jeffrey was a Navy vet and had served in the Vietnam War. He was the responding officer when two hikers found remains near Multnomah Falls on September 14, 1979. The report came in that human remains had been found and it would be a hike. In any event, we went to a point east of Multnomah Falls a couple thousand yards and hiked right up the side of the gorge. It was a steep almost a free-falling slope, a talus slope of rock, only it was stabilized with trees and stuff, but still it was a, a vicious scramble getting up there. And when we got to the scene, our temples were pounding and our hearts were hurting and this and that and the other. And we started to look around and found partial remains, bones here and there, and uh, skull. And we looked around as best we could and gathered everything we could. A news article from the Oregonian Archives states that the remains had been exposed to the elements for quite some time. And just when you had seen the body, what were your thoughts on that? Had you ever been in a situation like that before? Uh, Was it maybe startling for you, or was it just part of your job at the time? Never completely comfortable around human remains or recently dead people. I remembered the need to remain focused, remain functional, and do objective work. Did the best I could, and uh, had no problems doing it. We had uh, tissue materials in the shoes, and other than that, clean, dry bones. It's a rich biological area. There's every kind of critter you want to imagine out there. So we were lucky to get as much as we did in the way of remains. And uh, very few personal effects. Never found a wallet. The way the remains and belongings were found indicated they had been disturbed by animals. Among them, investigators found a chewed-up checkbook from the First National Bank of Oregon. It had no name, date, signature, or account number. 
Jeffrey said that at this time in Portland, a lot of retired detectives worked at the banks, so if a sheriff's department put in a request, the detectives turned bankers got back to them quickly. Even so, the checkbook didn't offer any answers. Investigators also found large, gold-rimmed aviator glasses. They were missing the left noseplate, and a bandage was wrapped around the right temple bridge. Investigators could tell the owner was right-handed because the way they removed the glasses with their right hand left a telltale bend. The glasses also showed that the person's left ear was higher than their right, and there was a white deposit on the temple pads, which is caused by sweat. Searchers also found clothes, a light forest green shirt, blue jeans, a size 32 one and a half inch wide leather belt, long johns, blue socks, a yellow ball cap with black felt letters reading NT, and a brown suede leather jacket. There were also a pair of light brown size nine and a half high top hiking boots that were made in Taiwan. They had the word insulated on the inside and ripples on the bottom to give support while hiking. They were still laced up when investigators found them. The teeth were in good condition, and investigators could tell that the third molar had not yet erupted, which helped determine age. Bones and hair indicated that the remains were that of a 20 to 35-year-old male, about 5'11 to 6'1, and 160 to 180 pounds. He had a thick, black, curly head of hair and a beard. His belongings and remains were bagged, logged, and put away at the Multnomah County Sheriff's Office property room. After Jeffrey's initial investigation, the case was turned over to Multnomah County detectives and the medical examiner. Jeffrey's only point of contact with the case after that would be bumping into detectives in the hallway at the sheriff's office. They would share whatever update they had at the time, and the two would keep moving in their separate directions. But Jeffrey knew one thing for sure. It was pretty obvious that we ran out of ideas and leads pretty quickly. Exhaustive search of missing persons reports. I had a teletype pretty broadly uh, indicating what we had and seeing if it would ring a bell with any other agencies. And nothing came back there. The skull and mandible, which is your lower jaw, were sent 2,800 miles away to the Smithsonian Institute in Washington, D.C., since at the time, the state of Oregon did not have an anthropologist on staff to do the examination. Scientists there completed an anthropological exam, and the skull measurements showed the remains most likely belonged to someone who was African-American. The Smithsonian also created a line art drawing. The black and white drawing shows a man with a slight open mouth smile surrounded by a beard. The portrait was accessorized with items found with his remains. The baseball cap with the letters NT pushed his hair out on either side. And the thinly rimmed aviator glasses rested on his nose. The drawing was widely publicized, but despite all of this, he could not be identified, and no one came forward with a name. He became John Doe, 79-1862. I am at Multnomah Falls. The falls is roaring, um, you know, just tons of water coming over it, which I guess, you know, makes sense uh, this time of year. Yeah, I think I can hear it in the background. The trail that leads to the top of Multnomah Falls, which is 620 feet tall, is a popular day trip destination for many Portlanders. Dave was there on a cool, brisk day, but it was still packed. Yeah, I feel kind of like overrun here. <laughs> Definitely very different than anywhere else we've gone uh, in terms of both the topography and just, yeah, the, the concentration of other people, which is high. There's even some dogs. Uh, hold on. At the base of the falls is a trailhead for a route that leads to an observation platform at the top. 
Other, smaller trails branch off as the series of 11 switchbacks climbs the face of the cliff. And this would have been the trail most likely he would have taken on the way up there? Yeah, if you started at the Multnomah Falls Lodge, as far as I know, the only, basically to get to any other of the trails, you start on this one. At the end of the first switchback, I paused at a sign that indicates the first departure one can take from the trail to the top, Gorge Trail 400. And one thing I've thought about is that, you know, you could hear me kind of huffing and puffing just this first switchback segment. I can see getting to this point, realizing that it's gonna be a lot more strenuous to get to the top than maybe one would think. Mm -hmm. And coming to this junction in the trail and seeing that the, you know, Gorge Trail 400, which leads off to the east, does not continue to gain elevation. I could definitely see changing your mind and heading down this trail instead. That's exactly what Dave did toward the approximate location where these remains were found more than 40 years before. This is much more obscure. It's much more isolated, you know, and it's just rock and dirt. Uh, there's, there's no asphalt here. It is, you know, directly uphill from Interstate 84, so it's not exactly out in the backwoods, but I doubt I'm going to come across, you know, anyone pushing their kid in a stroller on this trail. One of the unique things about the Northwest is, at least the western part of the Pacific Northwest, is when you get west of the Cascades, we just have a lot of moisture. It comes in from the Pacific, it falls, um, we've got rainforests here, which a lot of people don't recognize, and we've got these, these beautiful mountains, the Cascade Range, and so all of that moisture kind of runs up to the Cascades and then it kind of drops, and it's responsible for all of this really lush green scenery that I think people associate with this part of the country and which draws a lot of people to this part of the country. That's Kat Caruso, who we spoke to last episode about the Mount Hood National Forest. She works in the Public Affairs Office for the Pacific Northwest Region Forest Service. She grew up back east, but towering conifers and misty tree canopies drew Kat west. If you travel not very far beyond Portland, you have a lot of really sort of wild, natural places um, that are available for you to explore. What you will run into is the Columbia River Gorge National Scenic Area. It's this rugged, steep cliffed channel that's been carved out by the Columbia River over many, many, many eons. It's this very vertical space with these cliffs and these, you know, and running water that just comes down and it's, it's a very peaceful place. People go there to become one with nature, but from your point of view and the Forest Service's point of view, do you think that it can be almost dangerous sometimes? Is the terrain dangerous? Um, or are there precautions that people should take when they go into areas like this? Absolutely, it can be dangerous. And that is one of our greatest challenges is that this is an area that is accessible to a lot of people. And it's a very popular place to visit. It's very popular for recreation in our community. And but these are also in many ways wild spaces. And it is really important if you're going to visit any public lands, but especially national forest lands, um, to be prepared 
for all of the things that could go wrong um, when you're visiting. In none of these four cases do we know for sure exactly what happened, but some of them you can make a pretty strong inference that there was some kind of foul play. It certainly seems like Annie, the woman down off of the Redwood Highway, was unfortunately most likely murdered. Um, we can be quite certain that someone put baby Stevie in that reservoir. It may not have been, been murder, but obviously another human being put him there. And I think we can probably be pretty sure that Wanda also ran into someone who was up to no good up on Mount Hood. But my understanding is that there wasn't really any sign of foul play in this case. Yeah, that is pretty much, I mean, what they thought was he probably just took a break and died there on this log that he sat at. Um, when they found his remains, his glasses were still resting on the log nearby. So it doesn't seem like there was any sort of trauma or disturbance that have, could have caused uh, his death ultimately. And I think one thing that we can say for sure is that this is a pretty isolated area. If, <laughs> if you did have a medical event here, despite being able to see the freeway and hear the freeway just, you know, stones throw away, kind of like what we've talked about in a couple of these other cases, the odds of someone coming by are pretty slim, I think. And so there's not going to be any way to get help, at least not immediately. Yeah. Oregon State Forensic Anthropologist Dr. Nikki Vance re-inventoried the remains in 2005 as part of her human identification program that we've discussed in past episodes. She re-examined them in 2006, and in 2007, the bones were sent to a federally funded lab in Texas. There, DNA was extracted and the data uploaded to CODIS, but no match was found. We had had him for so long. He was found in 1979. And there had been so many people that had worked on that case. Um, we knew he was an African-American male, and we knew, based on that Smithsonian composite picture, uh, that he was fairly distinct-looking. Um, there were other things that were found with his remains. There was a ball cap that was found, some eyeglasses, that almost told a story about who he was. But I still didn't know who he was. I wasn't I wasn't privy to his name at that point. So he was a John Doe for us for the longest period of time. And his DNA had been uploaded into that CODIS database, had churned around for, again, decades, and wasn't hitting or associating with any missing person's DNA profiles. And so we, again, once again, knew that someone wasn't necessarily looking for him. So when we realize things like that, we realize that maybe this person was marginalized or maybe hadn't been in contact with family for a while. And that's, it's a way to investigate or to research an actual case, but it still doesn't get us very far. In 2019, the Oregon State Police Medical Examiner's Office received a $402,000 grant from the National Institute of Justice. It was the first of its kind. The grant paid for Nikki and the medical examiner's office to use DNA phenotyping and genetic genealogy to solve unidentified remains cold cases. Nikki believed the case of the remains found near Multnomah Falls was solvable, so it was an ideal candidate for the grant. In 2020, the state's medical examiner's office enlisted the help of Parabon Nanolabs. Dr. 
During a video interview with forensic sketch artist Joyce Nagy, I noticed a skull sitting on her desk in the background, so I had to ask about it. She picked it up and told me. On the side of his head is written Jim Lamb. And so we've always called him Jim. And, and it says 1898. So Jim Lamb might be the guy who had him as a specimen skull. This was obtained from a doctor's estate. So what had happened is um, the doctor's estate was um, part of his tools or, or part of the estate was donated to the museum here um, in Clackamas County. And the museum said, hey, there's like human remains in this box of stuff. And we really don't want human remains. So we came and, and collected it. And at the time, which was either the 70s or 80s, um, at the time, there really wasn't anything to do with him other than put him in a box on a shelf, which is where he remained for several years. So when I came and, and um, found him, um, I took him to Dr. Vance and, and she looked him over to make sure he wasn't Native American because if he's Native American, then we would give him back to them so they can put him to rest properly. But she um, she saw that he is um, mostly African American. Um, he probably was African. It's possible, if not likely, that the skull now known as Jim came from a man who was enslaved. The difficulty of tracing the familial history of Black Americans is just another example of slavery's lingering impact. African-American profiles are underrepresented in the GenMatch database. And genetic genealogist C.C. Moore says that building family trees for Black Americans is more challenging since there aren't a lot of records available before emancipation. You know, we have a reverse bias in our genetic genealogy databases where the majority of the people in those databases have deep roots in the United States. And those are the easiest cases to solve then if somebody, either a perpetrator or a Jane or John Doe, has deep roots in the U.S., then we're much more likely to be able to identify those individuals. So it's like a double-edged sword, right? We can't, <laughs> we, it's harder for us to identify a perpetrator of color, but it's also harder for us to identify a person of an I unknown identity, a Jane or John Doe also. And so, you know, it, it's it's a little inequitable, which is really sad. And we hate to see it, but there's no easy answers to resolve that. Dr. Nikki Vance has also seen this phenomenon play out. We know that African-American populations aren't necessarily uploading their DNA profiles into these public genealogy databases as much as, say, European populations. And that's for a number of, of different reasons. Um, I think African-American cultures or families pass a lot of their heritage down uh, through written records and through verbal stories and, and storytelling. Sometimes the classic ways that we define families don't necessarily apply to other cultures either. And so you might call, you know, a family friend your brother or you might call your cousin your sister. And so genetically speaking, you're not related to them in the same way as, as say, a European family would define their family. It's unfortunate because some of the underprivileged uh, groups are less likely to be identified for those reasons. And, you know, we really hate to see that. <laughs> we, we put in a lot of pro bono hours on those types of cases on my team because there's just no way to fund them. You know, they would be 
just exorbitantly expensive. But we don't want to just give up on them once we're out of the funded hours. So we just keep working and working and working on those. Um, but it can be very frustrating and very sad when we are not successful or haven't been successful so far on those cases. So we see the, those challenges with different populations. Our genealogists know how to tease out these genetic structures to look for family connections. And really that's what broke this case was the fact that there was a large family presence or family connection in the genealogy databases for this particular individual. Uh, but the <laughs> might be harder than I thought. To get an idea of what it would have been like to get from the trail to the area upslope where the remains were found, I scrambled my way uphill. No wonder, like, people don't regularly climb up the side. Yeah, I think this is a pretty uh, infrequently traversed trail to begin with. And those who do come down here, yeah, I doubt they're, I doubt they're climbing up the talus slope you know, very, very often. It's also probably not wise to do that. If he had laid down on this log any certain way, could someone walk by and see him laying there? From listening to your interview with um, Jeffrey Pape, it's hard to know, you know, exactly where he would have been, but mm. I think just, again, looking at what's in front of me here, like, it's really easy to imagine that you would not be seen from the trail. Um, there are spots where you would be. Uh, you know, like, if I look directly upslope right now, it's just rock. And I'm not 100% sure I would see like a body lying up there a few hundred feet, but I probably could. But if you'd go just a, you know, 50 feet in either direction, there's more brush and some, you know, dead trees and stuff like that. And, uh, and yeah, if there were a log up there and he were behind the log, then no, I would not see him. It would only be if I were to go up there myself, which it sounds like is what happened. Some people happened to go up there and, and found him. And is that area shaded because it was the summertime? Overheating is a very real danger. So would he have gotten necessary shade if he had laid down there? Uh, no, this is the one area that's pretty much totally open. Okay. You know, uh, that is that does strike me as a possibility because we know it was in the summer. I don't know, you know, obviously everything is hotter these days, but you still would mm -hmm. have, you know, sort of abnormally hot days here and there. Right. The family connections Nikki Vance spoke about earlier were what ended up giving Cece Moore some promising leads in this case. Despite the hurdles she faced, she located DNA profiles of people who shared a great-great-grandparent and a great-great-great-grandparent with the Multnomah Falls John Doe. After investigating those people and their familial connections on social media, she honed in on a subset of that group who showed an interest in online genealogy. One of them was Larry Jackson. Larry had never cared much for history in school, but now he's curious about his own family's history. Well, I started, I guess, in 95. We went to our first family reunion uh, on my mom's side. And uh, then every two years, uh, we started going. So when my biological grandfather, he passed away in 1999, it was like, well, who was his family? what was his life is all about and stuff like that. So um, so that's basically when I started launching, started asking questions to my dad, my 
mom, my uh, other relatives to find out how, who my family was and where did they come from. And then from that, it just kind of exploded. When he was a kid, Larry Jackson had an uncle he was quite fond of. A kind, intelligent man who liked to playfully tease his nieces and nephews. But at some point, this uncle had disappeared. No one in the family had heard from him in decades. His name was Freeman Isaac Asher Jr. He was very smart, kind of like a genius type person. That's Christina Asher Jones, Freeman's niece and Larry's cousin. Christina's mom was Freeman's older sister. She doesn't remember a lot about her uncle, but she said he was known as a joker. You know, as as a child, for me, he just teased a lot, you know, because I had this blondish, reddish hair and and it wasn't like anybody else in the family, uh, kind of. So he teased me a lot about that. Christina's cousin, Larry Jackson, never actually submitted his DNA to a genealogy company, despite his interest in his family's history. He didn't feel he needed to, since his dad and sisters had all done so already. But the online family tree they'd helped create led to Larry just the same. And in October of 2020, he got a call from a detective regarding his uncle Freeman. The same detective had called Christina, so the two cousins contacted one another to talk about what they remember about their uncle. It was the first time anyone had asked about Freeman in a while. When Freeman's brother died in 1988, his family tried to get in touch with him to let him know. Freeman was a Navy veteran, and they contacted the Red Cross, which helps families of veterans find missing relatives. They learned that Freeman hadn't tried to access any veterans' benefits. Still, they didn't think he was dead, and they never reported him missing. Because the way they made it sound was like, oh, well, he has to kind of give his permission to be contacted. So we just thought he didn't want to be contacted. You know, it's kind of one of those things where you feel like a person doesn't want to be bothered, so Mm -hmm. you don't bother him. At an 80th birthday party for Larry's grandmother, who was Freeman's mom, some relatives thought Freeman was either in Oregon or California. Eventually, a friend of Larry's from church put him in contact with a private investigator, but the PI could not find any information on Freeman. It was like he had fallen off the face of the earth. That is, until those calls from the detective in 2020. Around that same time, police had also tracked down a woman in San Fernando, California, again using social media and online genealogy. She gave investigators a DNA swab sample. This confirmed that she was the sister of the man whose remains had been found and proved definitively that he was Freeman Isaac Asher Jr. Here's what we now know about him. Freeman lived in Arizona until high school when he dropped out to join the Navy. Once he completed his military service, which included time spent as a postal clerk at the rank of Petty Officer 3rd Class and serving in the Vietnam War, Freeman returned to Arizona. Christina has a photo of Freeman in a Navy uniform with a white sailor's hat known as a Dixie Cup hat because it looked like the paper drinking cup. His family would post on social media for Veterans Day and Memorial Day to honor him. Family said Freeman always excelled at math. He enrolled at Phoenix College once he got back home, and an old yearbook photo shows him as a student with a collared shirt and mustache in 1969. In the 70s, a time filled with turmoil between Watergate, the Vietnam War, and unrest over civil rights, Freeman worked as a youth supervisor at the Maricopa County Detention Home in Phoenix. But he wanted to move to Portland to be closer to one of his sisters. Sometime after Freeman got to Portland in the late 1970s, he decided to do what Oregonians do, go on a hike in the Columbia River Gorge east of Portland. 
Christina recalls one of the last memories she has of her uncle before he left for Oregon. One of the last times I saw him, he was singing um, Easy by uh, Lionel Richie. The Commodores released Easy in March 1977. That June, the Portland Trailblazers won the NBA title, and delirious fans met the team on Broadway in downtown Portland for the championship parade. Sometime thereafter, Freeman headed east toward one of Oregon's most famous places, Multnomah Falls. We don't know what led Freeman to those cliffs, or even when he set off on his hike. Investigators believe that once he reached a log lying across the forest floor, he placed his aviator glasses on the wood and laid down to take a break. He never got back up from that log. One thing sort of unique in your reporting is that this is the this is the one case where you were actually able to talk to family members. You generally haven't been able to see these cases beyond, you know, kind of the, what's on a, a police report or through the eyes of investigators. But being able to talk to actual family must have been a pretty significant difference for you. This is a story that needs those types of voices, that needs those family voices. Talking to Larry, it was just kind of like being more connected to Freeman in a way, being more connected to these cases. Whole lives have passed. I mean, like Jeffrey Pape, for example. I mean, he was in the first few years of his career and Freeman wasn't identified until after he had retired. So just the fact that like Larry was still keeping Freeman's uh, story in mind and, you know, connecting through genetic genealogy and family trees. It was just kind of full circle for me as an outside perspective. Yeah, you get to have little details. It gives you a little bit more of an impression of what someone was like. It just mm -hmm. fills in their identity. Yeah, I mean, you can read what someone looks like all day long or what they were wearing or, you know, how they got these samples, but it's definitely not the same as having someone directly related to them. Yeah, that sort of oral history and... Yeah. Yeah. Getting to know Freeman's family was a gratifying experience for the investigators, too. After they kept digging into his family, they learned that he had not been forgotten. And the story that emerged was just this rich family history of a, of a really tight-knit, wonderful family that had come from different portions of, of the U.S. But it, what emerged was that there was one brother that just hadn't been heard of for, for a while. And our genealogists, again, were just stellar in finding um, all of this corroborating information. A lot of it is science, but a lot of it is as you said, humanity. We've got people reaching out to family members, talking to them compassionately over the phone, you know, giving them really tough information. Like we think perhaps your brother might be in the morgue, you know, in, in Portland, but we've got to be able to confirm that somehow. And, you know, in Freeman Asher Jr.'s case, that entire family just stepped up to the plate and said, what can we do to help? And so we did collect uh, some DNA samples from a couple of the family members. We were able to confirm that this was, in fact, their sibling. In January 2021, Freeman finally returned to his family. So we were able to give that back to the family. And it's a very small thing. And it's a sad thing to be able to, to, to give that back. But I think of it as dignity also. Here's this man who just needed his name back and needed to be back with his family, and we were able to do that. So it's, it's a small victory, but 
I think a victory nonetheless. Although it's one victory out of many cold cases, investigators could not answer all the questions the case posed. Why was Freeman hiking in that spot? Exactly when had he died? What did the letters NT mean on his hat? Freeman's case is officially closed, since there was no evidence of a crime. Too much time had passed to determine a cause of death, and his bones revealed no trauma. Freeman never married or had children, but he got his name back, and his family knows his fate. Next time on The Unidentifieds, we take a final look at the cases we've explored in this podcast, talk more with Freeman's family, and wonder what the future may hold for genetic genealogy and unidentified remains cases in the state of Oregon. The Unidentifieds is a production of The Oregonian and Oregon Live. Regan Mertz reported remotely from Missouri. The podcast was edited by me, Dave Killen, alongside Andrew Thien, Teresa Mahoney, and Carly Imus. Thanks to McKenna Bach for the theme music. You can find more Oregonian podcasts at OregonLive.com slash podcasts. If you liked this project, give us a five-star rating in Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. You can find The Unidentifieds anywhere you get your podcasts. We'll be back next week with another episode. If you like what you hear, follow our show and leave us a review.